Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Awesome, awesome. Hey, if this is your first time joining us here in our room at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be celebrating. I've had a speech problem the last couple weeks here. We're going to start that over. This morning we are celebrating the beginning of Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. And today is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem just a matter of days before he was brutally tortured and nailed to the cross for our sins, but also just a matter of days before he rose again, resurrected, defeating death once and for all. But this morning as we're starting Holy Week, I wanna look at uh, some verses in John chapter 12 and make some comparisons between a few things. Um, Sometimes it's good to compare things to other things, sometimes it's not, right? But in the idea of comparing two things to each other, you know, we do that to get an idea of the difference between the two things. Sometimes we do that to get an idea of how far we've come from from one place or one way of doing things to another. Um, Quick example, Thursday night I was at home and there's this new trivia show on Netflix I was watching and it's like an interactive thing, right? They ask you questions, you get to pick the answer and it was a whole lot of fun and uh, one of the questions came up was what decade was the first mobile phone created? And I thought, that's interesting, hmm, you know, 1990s? 2000s, right? The correct answer was the 1970s. And then I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then, of course, you know, I end up on Google, right? (laughs) Got to research that. And uh, it was actually the year 1973 when the first mobile phone was created. And so then I thought, well, I wonder what that phone looked like. Well, here it is on the screen held up by its inventor, Dr. Martin Cooper. And um, is it there? Yeah, look at that thing. That's like, that's the size of a house, right? Three bedroom, two bath phone. And um, it took 10 hours to charge and lasted a whole 20 minutes. So um, much different than today's phones, right? You know, if it doesn't last four or five days, we're like, what's this garbage, you know? Um, But I don't want to talk about phones or technology today. Um, I want to make three comparisons from John chapter 12 Three comparisons that presented themselves to the people that were there that day on Jesus' triumphal entry, and three comparisons that, that we could see today and apply to our own lives. These comparisons, the first one is between Jesus and religion, and I will define religion later as we get into the study. The second comparison is between scripture and opinion, and the third comparison is between following and watching. And what we will see this morning as we look at this wonderful event in the life of Christ and what it means for us, we will see that obviously Jesus, Scripture, and following is way, way better than religion, opinion, and watching. Now just to kind of set everything up here, the Gospel of John, if you're a student of the Bible, has 21 chapters, 21 chapters. And almost half of the entire Gospel is dedicated to this final week of the life of Jesus Christ. If you go into the other Gospels, you'll notice in Matthew, two-fifths of the entire Gospel of Matthew is devoted to the last week of the life of Jesus. In Mark, it's three-fifths devoted to the last week of his life. 
Luke, a third of the entire gospel is devoted to the final week of his life. But John, almost half of the entire gospel. And that should help us understand the importance of the final week of the life of Jesus. There's so much here that is just so life-changing and critical to our understanding of who God is. And so that should help us go, you know, we, sh- we should study these things and learn these things because as God inspired the writers of the gospels, he inspired them to make sure that so much of what they written or what they wrote was about this final week. Now, interestingly enough, across all four gospels, there are a total of 89 chapters of content, all four gospels put together. Out of those 89 chapters, only four chapters cover the first 30 years of the life of Jesus. 85 of those chapters cover the last three and a half years of his life, his ministry, his public ministry, and then 29 of those 85 are what cover the last week of his life. And so as we begin Holy Week today, looking at this very, very important event in the life of Jesus, this important event that is mentioned in all four Gospels, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 of John 12 and really see what God's uh, word has to say to us, to, to encourage us, to inspire us, to focus our minds, especially as we begin this week. But before we get to all that, let's spend some time reflecting on who Jesus is. Let's profess our gratitude to him for what he's done for us through our offer of praise and worship to his holy name. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We are so thankful for who you are, what you did. God, we are so grateful for what this week means to our lives, God. Lord, as you came fulfilling prophecy to do the very thing we needed most of all, to die for our sin, to purchase our salvation, to redeem us from sin and death. And so God, today help us to to look at this wonderful moment, this triumphant entry, God, and be encouraged by all that it means for us today. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, as I said, we are going to be in John chapter 12, looking at verses 12 through 19. I just wanna open by reading the passage, and then we'll dig into it. It says, the next day, when the large crowd had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we just pray you bless this time and bless your word, God. Speak to us, encourage us, God. Especially on this holy week, God, that our mind would be turned towards you and what your death and resurrection means for us 
every day of our lives, God. We love you so much, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, today is Palm Sunday, and, and it celebrates this event we just read about here in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, as it is called. Now, even though today is April 10th, on our calendar, our modern calendar, which is called the Julian calendar. On the Jewish calendar of the day, this day was the 10th of the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. Now, the 10th day of the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar was an interesting day because that was the day Jewish families during this week would would select the lamb that would be sacrificed, that would be the Passover sacrifice to cover the sins of the family. And so it's very interesting that on this particular day of the the calendar is the day that the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself, as it were, to the nation of Israel as their king. Now, as I said, in that day, that particular day on that particular year, on our modern Julian calendar, would correspond with April 6th, 32 A.D., and we're, looking, we're gonna look more at the significance of that date in a little bit. But I mentioned earlier that I wanted to make three comparisons this morning from the text here um, and see how these uh, comparisons apply in our lives. And the first one was a comparison between Jesus and religion. And I wanna look at what we learn by comparing the two. And I think the big thing that we learn from this passage when we compare the two is that ultimately Jesus is more appealing to people than religion. Or Christ the person is more appealing to people than what man creates on his own to connect to God, okay? And it was the same then as it is today. So again, look at verse 12 with me. It opened up there and it says, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, when you look at that, you go, there's a crowd. Who is this crowd that is gathering here? Who is this crowd that, 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 is, that has come to Jerusalem? Well, on the surface, at least, it's a crowd of religious people. It's a crowd of people that have come to Jerusalem in the exercise or the observance of their religious faith. They were gathered in Jerusalem there for a religious festival. It was a festival that was a part of Judaism, the religion of Judaism, and it was called the Festival of Passover. Now, in the, the, the Jewish faith, there were three mandatory feasts that all Jews that were within a certain radius of Jerusalem, they were required by, by the, the, the religious laws that they had to travel to Jerusalem for these, for these feasts. And these three feasts were known as the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the one that's here in John chapter 12, this last week of the life of Christ, is the Feast of Passover. And this was the time when the Jewish nation, they celebrated. They celebrated their deliverance, the deliverance of their forefathers from the bondage of Egypt. And you guys can go back into the book of Exodus and read all about that, how the Jews were in bondage, in slavery in Egypt, and God delivered them mightily through through 10 plagues and then leading them through the wilderness and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. Such a wonderful thing that had become by this time the focal point of Jewish history. It was the focal point of Jewish history. It was such an important event, and so it was celebrated every single year. But for many, over the years, 
and it's the same with us, it can be the same with us, the routine of the whole ritual for some had just gotten old. The routine had become mundane. And there was a clamoring among the people as Jesus came on the scene to do his ministry that there was a clamoring amongst the people for, for more than what they had made of their religion was offering to them. And so here we see that the people found out as they were gathered together to, to observe this religious rite, this very important feast, they heard that Jesus was coming. And they all got excited, right? They all got excited, it says. They heard that he was coming and they grabbed palm branches and they went out to meet him and they were shouting this, this, this phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this word Hosanna means uh, something like save now or deliver us now. Very interesting, right? We're here, we've traveled to Jerusalem, we, we, we were required to show up for this feast, um, and, and that what, Jesus is coming? Jesus is coming? Everybody, rush out to meet Jesus. Deliver us now! Save us now! The idea, I think, or at least part of the idea there, is give us what our religious routine cannot give us. Give us what the man-made constructs, that, that what man has made of religion, give us what that can't give us. Save us, deliver us now. Because at this point, what Jesus had been doing in his ministry all over the place was a breath of fresh air to so many in the climate of, of what had become, um, very possibly for many, a stale, stagnant religious experience. Now, it's important to note that God hadn't changed one bit from the very beginning, right? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, same God, right? People that don't know the difference like to point out, oh, the God of the Old Testament is the mean, angry guy, and the God of the New Testament's had a nap, so he's, he's in a better mood, right? But that's not true. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, the same God of grace, the same God of love, the same God of justice, right? So it's important to know that he's always simply had a desire for his creation, mankind, just let's have a relationship. Let me be your God, you be my people. I wanna shower you with grace, just be obedient to me, but, but let's just have a relationship, right? But the problem was, is instead of accepting the grace-filled rule and governance of God, mankind, and more specifically, the children of Israel, they demanded rules. They demanded rules. We want rules. We want regulations. And so God said, well, okay, here you go. Here's the Ten Commandments. You, you want to be righteous on your own efforts instead of just let, let, let me love you and make you righteous? Well, here you go. Here's the rules. And they thought, thanks. But they couldn't fulfill them, which incidentally was the point, right? God gave those laws to them as the Bible tells us, to show them that, that, look, following rules won't lead you to righteousness because you don't have it within you to be righteous, right? The, the, the word of God tells us that the law was a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And it was way back then when they got it. The whole point was, is, look, your Messiah, your Savior is coming. Look to him. But unfortunately, what they did is they took these rules and they said, sweet rules, love them. Ten? That's not enough. Let's turn those ten into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of religious rules. 
And so they did that. They had turned these things into, into just so many rights and regulations, and, and the teaching of man turned into, look, if you don't follow all these things, you cannot possibly be made right with God. You cannot possibly be made right with God. But that was never the point. Jesus came along and turned all of that upside down. He came along and he was like, look, it's not about earning God's favor to, 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 to be righteous so that God is happy with you. That was never the point. It was about being made righteous because you trust and believe in God. And then at one point it was like, you know, that was even the experience of your father Abraham, the very father of your faith. It wasn't about rules and laws and regulations. He just believed God and he was made righteous. And so I think the people were clamoring for this at the time because the oppression of what man had made of this relationship with God, what man had turned it into, far beyond anything God had ever intended, was oppressive, was, 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 was harmful to people. And so they were, they were clamoring for something different. You know, in Mark chapter 12, verse 37, it, there's a story there recorded as, as Jesus was speaking in the temple during this Holy Week. It says, the large crowd was listening to him with delight. And I love that picture. That, that phrase, large crowd, or that word crowd, it can be also translated the common people, the normal folk, right? The everyday folk, it's telling us, heard Jesus with delight, they heard what he was saying, and it was like, wow, that's so different than what we've been um, told before or what we've grown up with. You know? And in that same chapter, Jesus gives parable after parable to the people, story after story. And the people are hearing him with delight, but after he gives these parables and after he gives these stories, Jesus then turns and confronts the religious elite. The religious, and what I mean by religious is those who had taken what God had given and said, no, no, we're gonna change it and add to it and turn it into something that, that is about our own righteousness. He turned to those religious people, those who had misrep misrepresented God with religion and just confronted them and tore into them, right? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. I mean, it was just over and over. But the common people, they heard what Jesus said and they heard it with delight. Jesus the person, what he had to say, was far more appealing to the people than, than their hollowed out empty religion that their relationship to God had become. That what was called religion in the context of what man had made, what man had constructed, what man had put together, this is how you get to God, this is how you connect to God, was hollow, was empty. And I think people knew it. Because year after year, they would go and say, here's my sacrifice for my sins, and they, and they, they knew that I'm gonna sin again. I'm gonna sin again. I'm gonna do it again. I think all of us know what's within us, right? And all of us have struggled with the, I try really hard, I try really hard, I try really hard. Why do I still sin? Why do I still fall down? I, I'm trying. And what Jesus came to say is that's the problem. You're trying, not trusting. 
Just trust me. Let me work in and through you. Stop trying to be righteous. Just, just, just let me do that work through you. Let me change through you. And in the process of me changing your stuff, just, just, just obey me. Just love people. Just serve people. Just, just be about others. And, and watch, I'm going to change you through that. Because this difference between Jesus and, and what their religion was as it was, was so different, there was a clash. There was this constant clash between old and new a clash between what their religious system had become, what it had been made into in this new stuff that Jesus was offering. And, and this clash happened a lot. You go through the Gospels and you see it over and over again. One example is in Matthew chapter 15. It says, then Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, and these were the religious leaders, the ones that thought, you know, we are the holy people, and so here's all the rules that we've, we've added to what God gave us. And it says they approached Jesus and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Whose tradition? The elders' tradition, right? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus said, why do you break God's commandments with your traditions? Boom, mic drop. Right? Just like, what's up now, guys? Then he goes on, verse 4. For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, well, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift to the temple. So you don't have to honor your mother and father. He goes, in this way, you nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. And so clash after clash. And because of this difference between what Jesus offered and what the religious observance offered, it was people like tax collectors and prostitutes and murderers. They, they actually found it easy to hang out with Jesus. Not that he condoned or supported their behavior, but when they would hang out with Jesus, what they would get from Jesus were, were soothing, forgiving, loving words. And he often expressed these words to the lowest of people, still called them to get right with God. Still called them to the relationship that God had always wanted with his people, but didn't condemn them. But on the flip side of the coin, some of his most scathing words, his most intense words were to the quote-unquote religious people those who thought that they would be made right before God because of their own efforts, their own righteousness. Now, religion itself is something that was never condemned by Jesus or condemned by any biblical writer. But there is a difference between real religion and false religion. The Bible does talk about that, right? In James chapter one, verse 26, it says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before the God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Real religion is following the example of Jesus Christ. Real religion is about being about others and serving others. It's depending on Christ for your own righteousness, but it's, it's saying, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you're calling me to do and be who you're calling me to be, but not on my own effort. I'm just gonna let you saturate me and I'm gonna let you change me. And I know that process is gonna happen as I say, God, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna follow you and do what you tell me to do. 
But what are the differences between Jesus the person and the practice of man-centered religion? Man-centered religion always seems to emphasize the outward. Look at what I'm doing on the outside. Watch me as I, as I give my offering. See? See how holy I am? It's always about the outside. Jesus emphasized, emphasized the inside. Jesus was always more concerned about what's going on inside a person, what's going on with your heart, with your mind. He was way more concerned with that than what was going on on the outside. Man-centered religion is most often focused on what you can't do, the rules. And it's focused on don't do these things, then you will be right before God. Because the idea is by not doing these things, you've, you've been righteous on your own. Jesus is about what you can do, who you can be, through the influence of him in your life. Man says, look what I didn't do, God, see how holy I am? And Jesus comes along and goes, but you really did though, didn't you? I didn't lust. Mm. Did you think about him wrong? You kind of did. I haven't murdered anybody. Did you hate him in your heart? You kind of did. And Jesus goes, look, let me change you. Just come as you are. <laughs> Be honest, and, and I will change you. I will do the work. Man-centered religion puts up barriers. Jesus pulls down barriers. You know, 2,000 years ago, if a non-Jew went into the temple went to the temple, he couldn't go into the temple. You're not a Jew. They would be confined to the outer court. It was known as the court of the Gentiles. Women, you had your own court too, right? Your own place. Because, you know, we had cooties or something, you know, spiritual cooties. But there, there, was, there was a segregation there. And then ultimately, even the Jews who got to go in, there was a big old gigantic veil that separated them from the presence of God, right? It's like they didn't get the point. You think you're extra special, right? Anyways, but Jesus came along and he said, look, all who labor and are under heavy burden, I will give you rest. A man-centered religion says you have to work your way to God. Jesus says, I am the way to God. And I think most false religions around the world are centered around human achievement, right? You're not going to go to the highest heaven unless you did your two-year mission. God's not going to let you in unless you pray five times a day. But the gospel just says, God did it. Accept it. God did it. Just believe it. Receive it. A man-centered religion says you have to do this or that or there's no connection to God. There's no relationship with God. And Jesus is like, look, I've done it for you. It is finished. Receive this free gift. Receive what I have done for you, and you'll be transformed in the process. And so Jesus, the person, then, and I believe it is today, is, is, is way more appealing than what man has come up with to connect with God. And I think that's important as we share our faith and let people know about why we're Christians and, and all that, you know, who Jesus is. What he did in your life to, to, to say, this, this is who I have become through Christ. This is what, it, it's not about what you can't do and you can't do that and you can't, and you can't, you can't. Sure, there, there's stuff that comes along in our obedience to the Lord where it's like, look, you know, 
walk away from sin, and all, but, but let Jesus do that work of transforming your heart. And so I think in our evangelism, and we've been having evangelistic uh, uh, track challenges and stuff, and I see the pile of tracks over there getting lower. That's so exciting, right? Letting people know that God cares about you. God loves you. He wants to change your life. He wants to set you free from the bondage of sin and death. That's what this week is all about. The second comparison I want to make is, is, is scripture and opinion. Look at verse 14. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. If you're out sharing your faith and passing out tracts, inevitably you're gonna find out that just about everybody has an opinion of Jesus. Just about everybody has an opinion of Jesus. Even in the time of Christ, Jesus knew this. It was at Caesarea Philippi, we read in the, in the Gospels that he was there and he turned to his disciples and, and he goes, who do men say that I am? And they were like, well, uh, there's a lot of opinions. I mean, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets, right? All kinds of opinions. And then if you read the whole Gospel of John, you find that John goes on to share even more of the opinions people had about Jesus, right? In chapter 9, oh, he can't be a man from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Chapter 10, he, he, he's a, he has a demon, and he's a crazy person. People had so many opinions about who Jesus was, and it's the same today. But here in the scriptures we're looking at this morning, John twice quotes from scripture, the word of God in the Old Testament. In verse 13, when he said the people came and they gathered the palm branches, he quoted from Psalm 118 where they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And then here, verse 15, he's quoting from Zechariah chapter nine. When he says, look, Jesus got on a donkey as it was written, and then he's quoting. This, this, was, this was prophesied. What John is saying here is whatever people's opinions about Jesus are, what matters is what God's word says he is. The point is that scripture is ultimately and always more reliable than people's opinions when it comes to Jesus. Always. And that's what the donkey has to do with this, right? What, what's this deal with the donkey? right? Weird detail, strange detail. Well, in quoting Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9 is where this quote was, where this quote was, where it says, look, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John is saying to us, the readers, he's like, look, scripture, scripture told us our king would come, and how our king would come. So scripture said, look, the king of Israel is coming and he'll be sitting on a donkey. Pretty specific thing, right? Look out for the dude who shows up on a donkey. That's the king. Interesting is that kings in ancient times would sit on donkeys or ride a donkey when they would go to meet another king or another people as a sign of peace, as a sign of peace. When they wanted to offer 
terms of peace to a group. We come in peace, right? Kings would then ride in on a donkey. This is why the donkey is, is considered, you may have heard it before, the animal of peace or an animal of peace. When a king arrived on a horse, he's coming to wage war. He's coming to do business, right? That's why in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he comes back on a horse. But on this day, April 6th, in our modern calendar, 32 AD, Jesus came into Jerusalem, God's city, as the Prince of Peace, to offer terms of peace to humanity. It was him riding on a donkey and him being on this donkey. As John is writing this, I believe the point he is making, it represents the reliability of God's word. That who, God, who God's word said Jesus is, is true, is accurate, is reliable, you can count on it. That prophecy in Zechariah 9 was written 500 years prior to this event happening. 500 years. 500 years prior, somebody said, your king's gonna show up, he's gonna be on a donkey. Not a horse. Not a camel. Not an elephant, right? False prophecies are often very vague. A dude's gonna show up riding on a beast of burden. Well, that can be interpreted in many different ways. No, no, no. Your king will arrive riding on a young donkey. Now, in Luke's version of this event, in Luke chapter 19, you could turn there or scroll there if you want. It's the same version of the story, Jesus on the donkey coming down from the Mount of Olives, heading towards the gates of Jerusalem. But it says this in Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached and he saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This is Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem and he just starts to weep. He's weeping. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. He's going, guys, your king is here. The day of God's visitation has arrived and you don't know it. You don't know it and because you don't know it and you reject it, destruction's gonna come upon you and historically we know that that did indeed happen. In 70 AD, the Roman armies leveled Jerusalem to the ground and not one stone was left upon another. But what I want to focus in on is what he says in verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. What is he referring to and how does this tie back to John? And how does this tie back to the, 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 the contrast between scripture and opinion? Well, he's referring to a prophecy. He says, if you knew this day, if you knew this day that God was going to visit you, what he's referring to is a prophecy that was made back in Daniel chapter 9. It was a part of Scripture. It was a part of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And it was a prediction made about the Messiah and when the Messiah would show up and how he would show up. The timing of all of this stuff. And it gave the exact timetable for the coming of their Messiah, the one they had been looking forward to and waiting for all this time, God in the flesh. Scripture said it, and it happened exactly as it said. And what Jesus is lamenting as he's on this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, why he's weeping is he's like, guys, you should have known because I gave it to you in my word. 
but because instead of reading my word and trusting and believing on it, you developed all your own opinions on how things should be, you're gonna miss. You're gonna miss the day of God's visitation. This timetable in Daniel chapter nine says that from, a, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah would be 483 years. Now there's a whole lot of math behind this. I don't have time to get through all of it, right? But 483 years and then the Messiah would be killed. But the conclusion is that one should be able to count precisely from this day to this day to know exactly that the dude that's riding in on the donkey on this particular day isn't some random dude riding in on a donkey. It is the Messiah. Well, there was a book written by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson. He was a uh, head of the criminal investigation department at Scotland Yard, and he wrote this book called The Coming Prince. And if you're interested in math and calculations and dates and times in, in scripture, I encourage you to get it. It's, it's a great book. But what he did is he did some historical study and he did some math, right? And so he looked at the prophecy in Daniel and all this stuff and he went, okay, historically, if we use our modern calendar and you count back the time and you figure out all this, we can historically, reliably uh, find that the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after it had fallen was March 14th, 445 B.C. There was a guy named Artaxerxes who was a Persian ruler at the time and he gave the command, go rebuild Jerusalem. He told the Jews, go back, rebuild your city. And Nehemiah and his buddies went and did it. You could go read about that in the book of Nehemiah, right? But there was a day in historical records, not just biblical, external, we, we could verify the day that this, this happened because of all these other things lining up was March 14th, 445 BC. So Sir Robert Anderson said, okay, I'm gonna take what scripture says. I'm gonna count the days. I'm gonna count 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC and find out the day that the Messiah was supposed to show up. But, to be accurate, he had to do some calculations because the Jewish calendar had 360 days in it. Our calendar is like 365 or 364-ish. It's, it's like weird, right? That's why every four years we have a leap year because whoops, we forgot a day. So that's our calendar, our modern calendar. But the Jewish calendar, very precise, 360 days. So what he did is he did all this math and said, okay, on our modern calendar, if it's March 14th on our modern calendar and I account for leap years and I account for all this, and then I recalculate it based upon 360 day years, that would be the Jewish calendar. What day would it land on on our modern calendar? Well, the amount of days calculated was 173,880 days. So he started on March 14th, 445 BC which was the first day of the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar, and he counted 173,880 days. Guess what day of the year on our modern calendar that landed on? April 6th, 32 AD. The very day Jesus got on the young donkey and rode into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9, which was written 500 years before the event happened. that 10th day of Nisan, the day that Jewish families would select the lamb that was gonna be slaughtered for them to cover their sins. The very day Jesus with the disciples comes to the Mount of Olives, all right dudes, before we go in, get me a donkey. Where are we gonna find? There's a donkey right there. Well, how did that happen, right? I mean, it just, it all ties together in this beautiful way. And, you know, it's interesting that Jesus then rides in and he allows the people, 
right? He allows the people, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, right? You go back through the Gospels, every time Jesus did a miracle, it was he'd do a miracle, then he'd go, shh, don't tell anybody. It's not time yet for me to be revealed. Do a miracle, shh, don't tell anybody. But here, he doesn't shush the people. Why? Because he's fulfilling prophecy. He is the king of Israel. The disciples didn't get it. They did, it says they didn't understand these things at first. And so in verse 16, it says, however, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. So they didn't understand it at first, but eventually they did. And that's a lot of our uh, expression as Christians, right? We're growing in our faith. Sometimes we read scripture and we're like, uh, no idea what that means. But then as you grow, as you mature, as you have experiences in life and God is working in through those things, you'll come back to that very scripture years later and go, I get it now. I get it. Wow, how beautiful. And then this is a really cool thing about scriptures. You'll go, I get it now. And then five years later, life experience, God working in your life, you'll come back and you're like, something different? Same scripture. But the application now has, a, has a, a nuance to it that it didn't have before because of, of where you are with your walk with the Lord. Now it's beautiful. But regardless of what people's opinions were about Jesus, regardless of, regardless of who they said he is and who they say he is, Scripture is and always will be absolutely reliable and absolutely accurate over and above all opinions of man. And if you don't believe that, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> Because one of the foundational things of Christianity is, God, I believe you. I believe who you are. Therefore, I believe what you said. I may not understand it right now, but I believe it. And if you want this source of confidence in your life, you want this type of real security, let your life be governed by the word of God. Because it is absolutely accurate. Not the word of man, not people's opinions. Real freedom, real security, real, real hope, all of it comes when our lives are governed by God's word. And so let me close with a third comparison here. We had Jesus and, and religion, right? I'm doing this because religion inherently is not evil, but what man makes of religion, right? Then we had scripture and opinions, and now we got following and watching. And following is always uh, better than just watching. Following has effect way better than watching. Following Jesus is more important than just watching Jesus. Following Jesus is more important than just observing or inspecting or analyzing Jesus. There's four groups of people here that John mentions in the verses we've looked at. And so he, he, he highlights these four groups of people and he highlights their response to Jesus. The first group we see in verse 16 is the disciples. Right? These are the guys that have been following Jesus for three and a half years at this point. And by followers, I mean disciples, students, Right? They're, they're, they're following him. They're soaking in his teaching. They're applying it to their lives. Even though they didn't understand some things at first, but later on after he was glorified, things came together, right? So these are the disciples. Verse 17, we have the second group of people that were here. These were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. Look at verse 17. It says, Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. Now that word testify um, can be a little bit misleading because when we hear the word testify, we immediately think, oh, that's what a saved person does when they tell someone about Jesus, right? Testify. But what this word means here is just simply that 
They saw something, they watched it, they observed it, and they told others, I saw something. So it's not implying any type of faith or, 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 or religious connection or anything. It's just simply saying that these people saw something and they go, hey, I saw this. The third group is those that had heard these eyewitness accounts of the raising of Lazarus, but they weren't there themselves. Verse 18, this is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. And then the fourth group that observed this entry into Jerusalem is the religious elites, the Pharisees, verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now what I want to point out here is all four of these groups of people were watching the same event. They were observing the same event. They were witnessing the same event, this triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But out of these four groups of people, what's indicated here in the verses is that only one of these groups was really following Jesus. Only one of these groups were really students of Jesus, and it's the disciples. You know, it's good to watch. It's good to observe. It's good to analyze. But watching and observing, it it has to lead to conclusions at some point, or you're just wasting your time. You know, the conclusion of Jesus' disciples was, is, and and, and would always be, Jesus is worthy of following. So we're going to follow him. He is the one scripture foretold, right? It took us a while to put it together. But he is the one. We're going to follow him. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And, and, and if you want proof of that, you could get another book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it details how each one of these men were killed for their faith, murdered in, in, in some gruesome and horrific ways. And if they didn't believe what they believed, man has a tendency that when it hurts too much, we go, okay, okay, okay. I don't really believe that. Stop. But they went to death for their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, God in the flesh. Now, some people love to study, and studying is great, and I encourage all of you to study the Word of God, right? Some people just like to watch things, observe things, just be in the know, right? They dabble in a little bit in knowledge, and oh, yeah, I know some things, I know this and that, but there has to be a point in our lives where, where whatever it is we're watching and observing, whether, whatever it is we're talking about, whatever it is that we're, we're analyzing translates into doing something about it. Watching Jesus is fine. Analyzing what he does is great. Learning tidbits about his life is awesome. Even talking about what he's done is good. But when are you going to follow him? That's my question this morning to any of you who aren't following Jesus. When are you going to follow him? When are you just going to go from, yeah, he's a good guy and sure and all that, but I'm not going to obey him. When are you going to make the transition to following him? Because just knowing about Jesus isn't enough. Just going, hey, I agree with you, he's a good guy. That doesn't lead to salvation. It's when we put our hope, our faith, and trust in him and follow him. You know, the Bible says that even the demons believe in Jesus, and they tremble. Do you read that and go, hey, the the demons believe, they must be saved. Of course not. How will you respond on the day when God visits you? Because he's given you his word. He's told you about who he is. The Bible has been here for a long time. 
Many of you, I'm sure, that aren't following Jesus, you've heard about Jesus. People have preached about Jesus. Maybe you've come to church on, 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 on important days, Easter's, Christmases, and maybe this year was the year you're going, hey, I'm going to come on Palm Sunday too. And you know about him, but when are you going to follow him? How are you going to respond on the day when God, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, by his word, makes this day your day? I believe for some of you, today is your day. Today is your Palm Sunday. Today is the day God is visiting you. And just being a spectator of the event, it's far less important, impactful, or life-changing than giving your life to him and following him and receiving the gift of salvation he has for you. Recognize that this day, God is visiting you. He's here right now, and he's offering you peace. The same God who engineered the presence of this donkey 500 years after it was prophesied to be in this exact spot on this exact day of this exact year in this exact place, do you think he can take care of your life? Do you think he might know better? Do you think his way might be the right way and yours might not be? Do you think he could take care of your struggles and your issues and your problems? Do you believe today Maybe as God has revealed to you that of all the people and the entities and the ideas and the philosophies and the false religions that exist in the world, that this God is worthy of surrendering your life to, Jesus. Because I can tell you that he is. He is. He changed my life 22 years ago. So many in this room and so many watching online, he's changed your lives. But some of you you haven't let him change yours yet, and he wants to. He can handle you, he can change you, and today is the day of your visitation. There's no difference between us and the people of ancient Jerusalem, our world today and the world then. Yeah, we have technology. Yeah, we've gone from really huge cell phones to really big, tiny cell phones, and then for some reason they're getting big again. Who knows? I don't understand. Maybe so we could watch TV on them now. I don't know. But back then, some were disciples, some were followers, some were students of his, some were not. It's the same today. Some just watched and listened, some did, about, did something about it. It's the same today. But today, today is the day we celebrate. Palm Sunday. It's the day we celebrate his triumphant entry. And we celebrate it because on Palm Sunday, yeah, he entered his king on the donkey offering peace to humanity. But in the spiritual realm, he was on a war horse. And he came to conquer sin and death once and for all, for you and for me. But that donkey means he came to offer us peace. Peace between us and our creator to be reconciled and made right with our God. Not through our own efforts. Not through our own interpretation of how to make ourselves right before him. But through the truth of his word and what he said. And if we just confess him with our mouth and believe in him with our heart, we shall be saved. That's what his word says. He will pay the penalty of your sin for you today.
because he loves you. And so I encourage you, receive him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we celebrate this day where you entered into Jerusalem. You were celebrated as the king of Israel according to scripture. Lord, the people even said it, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But God, there's many people in the world today who might confess, oh, Jesus is great and he's a wonderful guy and everything, but they have never put their personal faith in him. They have never come to that place of saying, I believe you are God and I'm gonna follow you as my God. And Lord, you demonstrated your love for us in this holy week as we read in the Gospels, Lord, that you came, you wept over the plight of your people who knew you were coming, they had your word, and yet they still turned a blind eye to it and created their own opinions about you. And yet, Lord, you still came to the city. You still hung on that cross for their sins and for our sins. God, we're gonna look at that and celebrate that this Friday. And yes, Lord, I say celebrate, Lord, because your death purchased our freedom. And then, God, you rose on the third day. God, that we wouldn't just be people who've been forgiven of our sin, but that we'd be people who are born again, given new life. To be different. To be changed and transformed by you. To be people who are holy people who can glorify your name, not through their own efforts, Lord, but through your power. God, thank you so much. So while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this room this morning or if you're watching online and God has been speaking to you today about your need for salvation, I honestly believe God has been speaking to you much up to this point. I believe today is your day as Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept and said, did you have no idea that today was your day? I'm telling you, today is your day. Today is the day of your salvation. God is calling to you and offering you peace. He's saying, I love you so much. I know you've sinned against me. I know you've broken all my laws. I know you've done some horrible things. I'm God, I know everything, but I still want to forgive you. And so while we're praying, if you're in this room and you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, you want to have a life transformed, a life of peace. You want to know that when your time comes that you leave this earth, that you will be in heaven with God forever. Forgiven and made whole. If you want that this morning, just where you're seated while everybody's just heads bowed, eyes closed, praying, praying. If you want to receive Christ this morning, just raise your hand where you're seated and say, yeah, Pastor Nathan, I want to receive Christ. I see you in the back. God bless you. Anybody else? God is speaking to your heart this morning. You know you need to receive him. The way you've been living life isn't working. Your decisions haven't been the best, and quite honestly, they've led to some really difficult situations. God wants to forgive you of that sin. He loves you. If you want to receive him in this room this morning, just raise your hand where I could see it. Let me pray with you. If you're online, if you're on YouTube, just give us a quick note in the chat there. I want to receive Jesus this morning, and our moderators will be praying with you. If you're on our church online platform, there should be a button there that says, I want to receive Christ. Just click that. We want to connect with you and pray with you. Anybody else in this room this morning, you want to receive Jesus Christ? All right, let's pray. 
Those of you online and in this room, you want to receive Jesus this morning, pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God. Your Holy Spirit has been speaking to me, and I believe you. I believe you came to this earth. I believe you lived a perfect life. I also believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me that I could be born again, have a new life, forgiven, made righteous by you, and to know that one day when I leave this earth, I'll go to be with you forever. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I receive you as, as, as my master, my friend. Help me to follow you. Help me to glorify you with my life. Thank you for loving me so much that you would do this for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.